Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Human Decision and Divine Destiny, Judas and Matthias. In the remarkable film Capote, 2005, Truman Capote befriends a murderer named Perry Smith in order to research what he calls his non-fictional novel, In Cold Blood. In a fateful combination of decision and destiny, their two lives intersected and made literary history. Although Capote gave some legal help to Smith, he ultimately exploited him for fame and fortune. He fretted to his childhood friend Harper Lee, for example, that he actually needed Perry to die in order to finish his book. If they win this appeal, I may have a complete nervous breakdown, he said. He lied to Smith about his book's progress, manipulated him for details, betrayed him to legal limbo, and when asked by Harper Lee if he esteemed Perry Smith, he could only say, well, he's a gold mine. Interviewing Perry Smith dislodged unsettling memories of Capote's own childhood, of exclusion as an effeminate kid, family suicide, alcoholism, and parental abandonment. Those haunting memories fueled an obsessive act of self-identification with an emotional attachment to Perry Smith so much so that his gay partner, Jack Dumphy, accused him of falling in love with Perry. But despite their similarly dysfunctional childhoods, their life trajectories could hardly have been more different. Truman Capote, of course, became an icon of New York City's rich and famous glitterati and died of alcohol and drug abuse at the age of 60. Perry Smith, on the other hand, was a poor, obscure, petty criminal and merciless killer who was executed by the state of Kansas when he was 36. Capote pondered their very diverse de destinies that unfolded from such similar beginnings. Quote, It's like Perry and I grew up in the same house, and one day he stood up and went out the back door and I went out the front. The reading this week for Sunday, May 24th, from the book of Acts, introduces two men, both of whom served in the inner circle of Jesus' twelve apostles. For two thousand years, the name Judas Iscariot has epitomized infamy, treachery, and tragedy. As for Matthias, despite his importance as the so-called 13th apostle who replaced Judas, history consigned him to anonymity and obscurity. Since Acts 1, 12-26 is the only passage about Matthias in Scripture, we know nothing else about him. As I meditate on the lives of these two intimate followers of Jesus, I find it difficult, if not impossible, to understand how or why each one ended up where they did. And such is the mystery of human decisions and divine destiny, both theirs and ours.
With his infamous kiss of betrayal, Acts 1.16 says that Judas served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. But why? How could he have committed such a deplorable act? Three scriptures locate the explanation outside of and beyond Judas's own choices. John's gospel this week says that Judas was doomed to destruction, John 17, 12, as if some ominous fate overtook him. John and Luke also say that Judas's betrayal fulfilled scripture, John 17, 12, and Acts 1, 16. But their interpretation of the Old Testament to reach this New Testament conclusion would surely make most seminary professors scratch their heads. Luke also writes in Luke 22.3 that Satan entered Judas to betray Jesus. I don't find any of these three explanations entirely satisfying or illuminating. But at a fourth level, we should not patronize Judas as a mere pawn. He did what he did for his own complex motives, some of which are no doubt lost to us today. He received his famous 30 pieces of silver, but I suspect that other factors came into play, including some that he himself could not have fathomed. And so perhaps it was natural that 150 years later, some Christians tried to rehabilitate Judas's reputation. The recently discovered Gospel of Judas, a 3rd or 4th century Coptic translation from the original Greek that contains very little that is specifically Christian, portrays Judas as a hero who betrays Jesus at his own request, instead of as the quintessential villain. As for his own convoluted motives and their tragic outcome, we can say three things. First, Judas's betrayal of Jesus is unremarkable. Peter denied that he would ever betray the Lord, but he did so three times. The other eleven all said the same thing, but when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Matthew 26, 56. And so we should never deny our capacity for denial. Secondly, after betrayal and denial, Judas and Peter responded in similar ways. After aiding and abetting in the condemnation of Judas, Jesus, Judas was, quote-unquote, filled with remorse and returned the blood money. And finally, in playing the most undesirable role in all of human history, in some sense Judas took our place and triggered the events that led to the greatest good for all of humanity, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The selection of Matthias to replace Judas is likewise murky. Peter invokes Psalm 109 verse 8 to validate the process with the imprimatur of prophetic fulfillment. We read in Acts 1.23, May another take his place of leadership. At a more mundane level, the eleven remaining apostles simply nominated two candidates. They proposed two men, says the scriptures. 
When they prayed, they confessed that God himself had already chosen the right person and that their task was to decipher the divine predetermination. Finally, and I've always wondered if any church committee had ever dared to use this method, the apostles resorted to what one scholar called dumb luck to ascertain the divine intent. A roll of the dice identified Matthias instead of the alternate Joseph called Barsabbas. Contemplating these mysteries of human decision and divine destiny, I thought of John Milton, 1608-1674, perhaps the greatest poet of the English language. Struck blind at the age of 44, in his poem, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent, Milton ponders why God would gift him with remarkable talents, only to take them back. The mysterious ways of God felt harsh and arbitrary. Plunged into a world of darkness, he was filled with questions. Listen to his sonnet. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, in that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve there with my Maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Patience, humility, availability, and even resignation to the inscrutabilities of design, divine designs all serve us well. In the words of Milton's near contemporary George Herbert, it's probably best to leave thy cold dispute about what is fit or not. Whoever we are and wherever we are, a haunted novelist like Truman Capote, a failed disciple like Judas, an obscure apostle like Matthias, or a struggling poet like John Milton. Every person can serve him best, as Milton puts it, right where they are, even those who only stand and wait. And now for further reflection. What do you think of when you consider Judas? What do you take from Milton's poem? Have you had, ever had to only stand and wait when you wanted to speed and post or land an ocean without rest? And finally, see the book by Ray Anderson, The Gospel According to Judas, is there a limit to God's forgiveness?
For books this week, we have a book review by Ray Cowan. Ray Cowan is the webmaster of Journey with Jesus. He works for the Laboratory for Nuclear Science for MIT and Cambridge University. This week, Ray is reviewing a book called Reasons of the Heart, Recovering Christian Persuasion by William Edgar. Phillips, New Jersey, P&R Publishing Company, 1996, reprinted in 2003, 128 pages. A guest review by Ray Cowan. I found this slender 120-page volume to be an eye-opener. It could easily be described as a, quote, apologetic for Christian apologetics. Differing from many popular and scholarly apologetic works which address specifics of Christian belief, this book is much more strategic in its approach. Edgar argues for and presents a, whole, a wholesome approach to Christian apologetics, the giving of a defense or sound argument for why we trust God in Christ. Many of us probably don't think of ourselves as apologists very often, but whenever we speak up for the faith or commend it to others, we are in reality doing some part of the work of apologetics. Edgar lays the foundation for Christian belief in the first half of the book, then follows this up with a number of so-called conversations on issues that are common barriers to belief. Most importantly, he maintains a holistic perspective, keeping in mind that Christian belief is as much a matter of the heart as it is a matter of factual knowledge and logic. That's not to say that matters of the heart are irrational, but rather with Pascal that the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. In other words, it's the whole person that comes to trust God, not the mind alone or the heart alone. Edgar argues that Christian apologetics is, by its nature, a persuasive endeavor and not one of manipulating deductive facts and propositional logic alone. Nor is it one that calls for shallow, unreasoned leaps of faith. Rather, starting from the position that the historic foundational beliefs of Christianity are true, we may assume that there will be conflicts with reality in any view or belief that is in opposition to them. The main business of Christian persuasion, then, is to help people discover for themselves where their views are in conflict with the way the world really is. As theologian Dallas Willard would say, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. Edgar calls this process disclosure. As he says, the work of the apologist is to uncover the tension between unbelief and the knowledge of God that everyone has. But the duty of apologetics doesn't end with disclosure. One does not want to help people along to the point where they see the failings in the worldview and then abandon them. This is the way to despair. Disclosure is to be followed by what Edgar calls homecoming. He says, quote, faith is not only knowing the story, but embracing it through a whole-souled trust in the God who freely gives us the good news. To believe this message is to come home. In the second conversations part of the book, 
Edgar discusses some common barriers to belief, asking the question, why do people resist considering the most basic questions about life? He then covers three important issues that often come up in discussions of faith. Number one, religion as illusion. Number two, pluralism. And number three, the problem of evil. While not exhaustive, the treatment of each is relatively thorough and surprisingly powerful. The book concludes with a review and summary of apologetics and its goal. That is, quote, to lead doubters to faith by a proper understanding of who God is. Faith is not an irrational leap, but a basic trust in the one we have every reason to trust. The book, William Edgar, Reasons of the Heart. The reviewer, Ray Cowan, Journey with Jesus webmaster. <clears throat> For film this week, I review Planet Earth, as you've never seen it before. 2007, it's a box set with five discs. The subtitle of this BBC natural science documentary, Planet Earth as You've Never Seen It Before, is not even slightly exaggerated. Think of the incredible still photos of National Geographic brought to life in video format, set to remarkable music soundtrack, and narrated by Sir David Attenborough. This BBC project took five years to make and enjoyed a $25 million budget. Using the latest photographic technology like high-definition and ultra-high-speed cameras, Planet Earth celebrates the majesty, mystery, and beauty of the natural world. Frigid mountains and boiling deserts, jungles and caves, unimaginable migrations of various species, and elusive animals like the snow leopard that have never been filmed before in the wild. Each 50-minute episode comes with an additional 10-minute featurette diary of the behind-the-scenes wizardry that crafted the final project. This is family viewing for young and old at its very best. Planet Earth has received, for example, over 2,000 customer reviews on Amazon with over 90% of those reviews giving four or five stars. Planet Earth, as you've never seen it before. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted the beloved and very well-known poem by Teresa of Avila, Christ Has No Body. Teresa of Avila lived from 1515 to 1582. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. 
Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 24th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.